0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode, so let's jump right in.
1: This is Sarah Reese from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors, too. We are proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com other online retailers or visit a fine bookstore near you.
0: Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. So if you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. Welcome back to the Definitive Guide to No-Till Organic Gardening. Now, in this session, we'll pick up where we left off with Andrew Mefford, the editor of Growing for Market magazine and the author of The No-Till Organic Farming Revolution. Now, in last week's episode, we talked mostly about Andrew's journey into farming and research of no-till production methods after identifying the principal problems of tillage and the damaging effects on soil health that it's had worldwide. So in this session, we'll jump straight into the four methods of no-till mulching that the different farms that are profiled in the book are using successfully, as well as the pros and cons of each technique. Andrew also discusses the importance of identifying the context of your place and intentions before choosing which technique to follow as well. So be sure to go back and listen to the first episode in this series to hear about Andrew's background and experiences to get you caught up for this episode if you haven't done that yet. Now once again, I'll hand things over to Andrew. See, all of this makes a lot of sense. Now, let's focus on the how, because in your book, you've, you profile four main methods of no-till agricultural practice, all of them centering around mulch. So let's go through them one by one. Tell me a little bit about the technique, the benefits, and which type of farm it might apply to best.
1: Sound good? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a good way to, to look at it. I, that's you know when I was when when as I was doing these interviews and I was I working on writing the book. I thought, well, how how do I how do I tie all these systems together? You know what what do they all have in common? And and so really, the the one thing that they all all these systems have in common is that they use some type of a mulch to to do the job and replace. Uh, the the action of tillage. Okay, so, um, th- yeah, and I think so let's go. Yeah, let's start with the first one
0: then. Um, let's start talking about mulch grown in place.
1: So I'll I'll try to break these down really to their their most basic um, their most basic um elements because we could i i could talk all day long about this stuff and i love to but i also think uh i'm just going to break them down so people can kind of figure out what what each system is and they can decide if you know if one really appeals to them then they could either they could get the book and go go really in depth but um so the first the first no-till system that that i learned um is 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 i call mulch grown in place and um it's uh, some people call it the roller crimper method. Uh, so, the idea is that um, for mulch grown in place, it's it's really a pretty clever idea. Um, what 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 they do is they will grow a really dense. Uh, cover crop. So a lot of people use either rye or a combination of rye and vetch. And so anybody who's known, who's grown rye and vetch, uh, particularly in a climate where you either get a lot of rain or, um, can irrigate the crop. Rye and, rye and or vetch mixed in, uh, can generate a five foot tall, thick layer of biomass. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're just, uh, crops that, that just produce a lot of growth, a lot of plant growth. And so, um uh, the idea is that um you grow you grow the rye or vetch where you want to where you you want to plant something and then when uh, before you're ready to plant it you go in uh with a roller crimper which is usually a tractor implement so this is the, the, that's what I'm going to say the roller crimper method is Sort of better for people who are, want to to scale, do things on a larger scale, and may you know want to have a tractor. Um, but there, there is there is a BCS version of uh, uh, or I should say a walking tractor version of um, of of a roller crimper that you can put on a walking tractor. And I've seen people do uh, you know ways do things, try to do things with on a hand scale to to crimp a crop down, but. The, what most people are doing is using this roller crimper, which is a, a an implement that either goes on uh, most people put them on the front of a tractor, so on the the arms where the the bucket loader would be on a tractor, so they put this roller crimper and some people put them on the back where a three point hitch implement would go. Either way, the idea is that the roller crimper is 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 essentially a cylinder it's It's like a big barrel that rolls over um, over over the bed. And it has it has some fins that are um, that are welded to the barrel, um, so that what you're doing a, if as you you put the roller crimper in contact with the cover crop on top of the soil, and so you drive the tractor over it, and it, it both knocks it knocks the the cover crop down and makes it flat to the ground, which is the rolling part, and the crimping part is the the little the fins. That are that are, um, that are welded to the barrel, they just give it some texture and so what it does is the fin the fin crimps the stem of, of your cover crop and so without, without actually cutting through the stems, it just kinks the stem and so what that does is it means that, that moisture cannot flow up and down the stem anymore and so it's a way to kill Uh, to kill a cover crop without using herbicides in fact some some conventional growers uh, do a version of this and they they will use an herbicide to knock the cover crop down of course we don't we don't have that option um in organics and so so what we do is 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 use the roller crimper uh, just to, to mechanically kill the cover crop and um and it's the idea is that once once that c- cover crop has been rolled down, you can plant you can plant your your cash crop, say tomatoes or winter squash or pumpkins or anything through that um, through through the mat of of organic matter that is there. So it's it's like uh, it's you know how some people will take a round bale of uh, of hay or straw and where they need mulch they'll take it out and roll the round bale out. Well it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. You're just growing it in place. In- instead of growing it somewhere else, rolling it up into a roll and then unrolling it where you need it, you say, well, I want this to be my tomato field next year. So you grow, you grow a really dense stand of rye or vetch and you just kill it in place. In a way, it's ingenious. You, know, you say, oh, I need a mulch here. So I'll grow my mulch right here. And then, I'll, then when it comes time to plant, I will kill the mulch. So it's it's really a nifty idea, and the, so the idea is that the, if you grow a really um, a really heavy um, crop of rye or vetch or, or any any cover crop, and then can kill it, um, it takes a long time for that mat, it, 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 you know, that mulch to break down, and so weeds that are wanting to sprout up from underneath they can't grow through that layer of mulch. So that's that's the idea. Um, the the drawback is that you don't have very many planting windows. Um, since since you you um, you can only kill the crop mechanically. The the issue is if you if you try if you try to kill the crop too early, it will it will sometimes spring back up and keep growing. If you try to kill the crop too late, it may have set hard seed. Because the the general idea with these crops is you're usually trying to kill them when they're in flower, because that means that the energy for of the crop is up in the flowers, and usually the crop is mature enough that it will, if you roll and crimp it, that it will die without without springing back up. But it ha- if if most of the crop is in flower, it won't have set hard seed yet so that was the difficulty that i found okay
0: so it's really a challenge of timing it correctly when you plant it potentially
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would say. The, the the method works great. Honestly, I was a little bit skeptical when I first started working on the research farm. I thought that going to plant cuz a lot of what we did was to put transplants in. So typically what we would do is we would we would roll 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 crimp a uh, a cover crop down and then a week or two later we would come back and transplant um broccoli or tomatoes or you know you any anything anything you could transplant you would transplant it and so on the small scale way you could do it with you could either do it with a trowel or a bulb planter um and there are pictures of all this in the book i have pictures from from when i worked at virginia tech using a mechanical transplanter so you could do it on a larger scale with a mechanical transplanter or you could do it on a smaller scale by hand of just um Either using a bulb a bulb planter to take a chunk of soil out and put put the put your transplant in in place, or on the smallest scale you could just open up holes with a trowel and and throw a transplant in there. And so I was a little bit skeptical, honestly. I thought it, I thought well, it would be really difficult to transplant something in, um, into into the remnants of a cover crop just because there would be all those roots there. And one thing that they did, um. At Virginia Tech a lot that was smart was they would they would take a tractor with it, a, essentially a fertilizer shank on it, um, even if even if we weren 't using a mechanical transplanter, the place where let 's say the row where you wanted to plant tomatoes or something, they would run a uh, a fertilizer shank with a coulter in front of it. Uh, j- not to apply fertilizer, but simply to, to loosen the soil right where you were going to plant, and that actually did an adequate job of of loosening the soil enough that you could you could put a transplant in um, in through that that dense mat of cover crop. So the method worked really well because it, as long so the, the, you know one of the challenges was just getting a dense enough stand of cover crop. Okay, if you let's say if you planted a cover crop and germination was not good or germination was spotty, then that would mean that you would have weeds that would start to grow where the, the germination of the cover crop, crop wasn't good. Or if there wasn't enough fertility, mm-hmm. I mean, cover crops need fertility too. You know, the, the other the other problem is that you could have really, if, if you didn't have good cover crop growth, growth due to low fertility, then you would not have good weed suppression because what you need is a really dense mat of cover crop to suppress the weeds that want to come up around your cash crop, so uh, so it actually worked. The, the method actually worked really well as long as you could, as long as you could get a dense enough um, stand of cover crop, y- you would get. Um, you would get, uh, I forget the exact amount of time, but it, it, and it kind of varies, but you would get two to three months of good of good weed suppression uh, before before weeds would really start growing in around your crop. And that's why uh, you know, one of my favorites was pumpkins and winter squash because um, to grow in the system. because if you think about it, by if you put winter squash or pumpkin seeds, or especially transplants in the ground, Two or three months later, you're going to have a, a, a covered canopy of these uh, huge leaves that are blocking out most of the soil. And so, so that's why, um, all, all you need to get this system to work is to, to close the canopy of your cash crop, um, and then even if even if the original um, mulch that you grew in place starts to break down and weeds start to come up, then that point the the canopy of of your cash crop will start to suppress weeds itself. Yeah, no, I want to say is the pr- the problem with that is that you just you just can't you mostly get a, a planting window in the spring, right? Because growing rye or vetch, um, you you can't. Um, you have to you have to kill that cover crop on time because if you don't it will set seed and then you'll be planting your own weeds so you can't the problem is that on a on a small farm where you're plant planting salad mix every week, you don't get a planting window um every week with this type of method so that's why I say yeah that makes sense that roller crimper method really works better for. For larger plantings, like where you want to go out and plant your whole pumpkin patch, you want to plant all the winter squash or all the tomatoes or something like that. Or it's a way that people could really scale up no-till. If, if people were trying to wholesale, you know, tomatoes or something, I think it would it could be a really good good method um, for that. But but the other the other methods in the book are m- could be scaled up, but they scale they scale down uh, better.
0: Alright, well let's uh move on to those then. Uh starting with cardboard mulch.
1: So the common theme for the, the, the other three methods um that are that are I would say more downscalable is that uh so if you think about growing a crop, y- 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 you have two challenges. So one one is to prepare your planting area um so that you can put a crop in in the first place, right? Because you you can't just walk out to your lawn and put carrot seeds in your lawn. It's you know, obviously nothing's nothing is going to grow. So, um these these other methods use use mulch to in the first place prepare the soil to get it ready for planting and then they use mulches to suppress the weeds while the crop is actually growing. So, the cardboard mulch is a is a, is a, is an interesting, uh, variant, um, uh, that I saw in play, uh, on a farm. And I think that one of the, one of the benefits of the cardboard mulch is that, um, is that it can be probably one of the, one of the, it can be deployed very quickly. Okay. So by that, what I mean is that, um, the, the way that people mostly use it is they will put, they will either put cardboard down, uh, right on the soil, and put compost on top of that, and then uh, for smaller seeded crops, plant into the compost. Or um, another way to do it is to put compost down on the ground, put Put cardboard over the, over the compost and then put w- uh, wood chips or something on top of the cardboard just to hold it down and keep it from blowing away until it's wet. Because once the compost is wet, it will, it will, it will form to the contour of the ground and it'll be heavy and it'll want to stay in place. But until then, until then, it'll want to um, blow away. And so the, the, the reason that, that, um, you might be interested in the compost method is because one of the problems with these no-till systems is that perennial weeds can be a real problem when you have weeds that want to um you know some of these uh some of these weeds like docks and um and uh perennial grasses and things that have a really established tap root or have uh, uh other rhizominous, uh very very strong roots um they can they can pop up through a couple inches of compost, and so if someone wanted to get started, I'd say if someone wanted to get started really quickly, somewhere where they they in a really weedy um, in a really weedy area, uh, that the the compost me- or the the cardboard method might be a good one for them because they could pretty much uh, show up put put cardboard down, which would keep keep all the perennial and annual weeds down and then do that process of build just building their soil up on top of the compost and the other thing is that compost uh is apparently it's really good really good um worm food is that um worms like to to breed under under um under cardboard and they they like to eat it too and it's it's worth mentioning that um cardboard is 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 able to be used in organic uh certified organic systems only if it's um the black it, it if it only has black printing so some um a lot of the places where people source cardboard uh, i've gotten some from an appliance store in my town another thing is um uh, box uh bikes bikes are shipped in cardboard boxes and so so places like that um uh, Places like that that are getting um, shipments of, of, of big things in cardboard boxes might be a good source for somebody uh, like if somebody I- I'm imagining somebody's moved to a new place they want to they want to you know establish a first-year garden it they could it, go to their town and see if see if those places uh, they likely have piles of cardboard sitting out back waiting hopefully waiting to go to recycling um, I I had good luck just going into in my hometown talking to my appliance store and they said yeah you can you can have all the cardboard you want and so I've, I've messed around with this a little bit and and that's the idea is that you can put the cardboard down down and it'll it'll suppress whatever's growing there. I, you know, you could even go uh, take existing lawn and simply put the cardboard down on top of it, and it it allows you to have the mulch uh, the mulch uh, while while you're growing something, right? Because you could put the cardboard down, and it will smother whatever's growing under it. Put some card put put some compost on top of that, and then you can plant into the compost. So. So, I like the cardboard method because it's, it, it's, it's a way of dealing with those really persistent, pernicious perennial weeds. That, that, I'll say those perennial weeds, you know, that's one thing. They seem to be the bane of no-till. Because the, the problem is that if, if you can't cultivate them out, how are you going to deal with it? If, if a dock or some other, uh, you, you know, really big, uh perennial weed that has a lot of energy stored up in its root um, it it, and wants to keep coming up even after you smothered it Uh, you know that that's that's a challenge for a lot of a lot of no-till growers is how to deal with those persistent weeds that keep keep wanting to come up and so so cardboard should be heavy enough of a mulch to smother uh to smother out most um most perennial weeds that want to grow there um and so, in much much the same way, that, you know, the, ne- the next method that, that I'd like to talk about is the deep straw mulch, mulch method. And so... Yeah, here, quickly before we start on that
0: one, I just wanted to see if you observed some of the same things. Because I've uh, done the cardboard mulch quite a few times as I've set up gardens in other parts of the world. And I would go back, you know, a couple of weeks or months later after it had started to break down and sort of peel back the cardboard a little bit oftentimes that's where I would find the most um, fungi or mycelium with all of those like uh, those little white feli growing around they seem to do really well around that unprocessed cardboard have you have you noticed the same thing
1: Yes, yeah, I've seen that on my own farm and uh, visiting with some of the growers. Um, one really awesome guy, Ricky Baruch, he's got Seeds of Solidarity Farm in uh, Massachusetts. He's one of the, one of the growers profiled in the book. And, and I went out to his farm and, and it was fun because he was, he, he had shown me in in, uh, one place, uh, actually a few places where he had planted, um, on top of cardboard, and and so f- the one thing that I noticed was that his soil, because he had been doing this for a number of years, his soil was so loose he could just dig up to his elbow by you know with his hand into his soil, and you know I remember being at his place and seeing where um we we pulled up the cardboard and yeah there were a ton of the, a ton of those white fungal mycelium. And also, and lots of worms hanging out under there, because apparently the worms like yeah, to eat, yeah, the, to eat the cardboard. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there's good stuff going on down under that cardboard. Nice. nice. All right, let's All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's go uh, let's into, go straw, into mulch straw mulch like, you were, like you were doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, once again, it's the the similar idea with the, str- the the idea with the straw mulch is that, uh, of course, the straw isn't dense enough to su- to suppress. Um, most of those perennial weeds all by itself. But if you put a thick enough layer on it, um, that, that, you know, you put a thick enough layer of straw on anything, you'll, you'll, um, you'll, you'll suppress almost anything. And that's why we call it the deep straw mulch method, um, in the book, because it is, you know, the growers that I, that I talked to who are using, using straw pretty exclusively as a mulch, they were putting on really thick layers, like, um, four or six inches of straw, or in some cases, they were just taking round bales and, and rolling them out. And so similar idea, basically, that you, you just want to cover, you just want to keep the, the soil covered um, as much as possible when you're not growing something in it. And the other benefit of using the straw is that as the straw is in contact with the ground, and as your as your um, network of um, of soil life grows, the, 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 the straw itself is going to break down and um, and contribute to the organic matter in your soil. And so, so some people really like using a um, using the using just really really deep um, deep layers of straw to suppress the weeds instead of um, instead of uh, instead of, of, of cultivation. And um, they they'll even use the straw kind of like uh, almost like a tarp for what we would call what we call occultation which which if growers if people aren't familiar with the term occultation is essentially a fancy way of saying tarping and it it's a technique that's been used in europe for a long time uh which is why uh, which is where that term occultation comes from i think it's actually a french term uh, meaning uh you, you know kill, killing the vegetation on, on a spot by simply by by um by blocking out the light And so, um, so some of these growers, they will, they will, they will put a heavy layer of straw, they will leave a bed mulched, even when it doesn't have anything growing in it, they will leave a bed mulched with a heavy layer of straw, uh, that is acting as occultation. So that it's, it's smothering out anything else that might want to grow there. And so when, when they, when they come and they want to plant the bed, the, um, the, the, two, the two main methods are they, they'll either peel the, peel the straw mulch back uh, with a rake or something like that. So for smaller th- seeded things where they need access to the actual soil, uh, like direct seeded crops and, and small very small transplants that wouldn't do well in a, in a bunch of s- straw mulch, they will either, they will peel back all or part of the straw mulch um, and leave it to the side um, in some cases for the entirety of the crop, in larger uh, larger plants, they will like like let's say a, a kale plant that starts off pretty small but will get pretty big. Um, I, they would they might take the mulch off while the while the kale plant gets established, and then they would roll it back on, roll it back up to around the plant um, once the plant is larger and established to keep suppressing the weeds uh, around the plant while it's growing. Um, the other the other possibility is with uh, with larger crops like um, t- like tomatoes and things like that uh, they would actually just just stick just use a trowel or something and make a make a little hole in the straw um, and plant and just leave the straw in place and plant plant the crop through the straw so that it, it is mulched it is mulched around the crop in much the same way that people who use black plastic mulch. The, the, the black plastic is suppressing the mulch, um, the, suppressing the weeds around the crop while it's growing there. So, one, one very important, um, difference between, let's say, deep straw mulch and black plastic mulch is that, that, um, the, the, the drawbacks to this type of system, um, are that light mulches will cool the soil. And so, in my in my um, searches, m- most of the most of the growers that I talk to who are using deep straw mulch were in the southern half of the country, because if you think about it, in the in the northern half of the country, the struggle is always uh, getting that soil warm in the spring, right? So you you wouldn't really want to put a thick layer of straw mulch on, um, you you would be setting things back. Whereas in 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 a uh, Let's say parts of the, um, of the southern United States and other other p- hot parts of the world, it actually might be a yeah, benefit. Subtropics, subtropics where we are, yeah, yeah we yeah, use it a lot. Yeah, yeah, subtropics. I mean, there there are lots of places where you're actually you, you're, where it's it's really hot in the summertime, where it, it benefits the soil to keep it to keep it shaded and cooled, and you have less evaporation and, and all that kind of stuff. So 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 that, that's why I think it's important for people to understand their people understand their options because something like uh, you know deep straw mulch might be great for might be great for tomatoes in the the American South or the subtropics or something like that whereas it would be you know not so not so great trying to grow a hot weather crop um with a mulch like that in the northern um in the, in the northern US. So that's so that's one of your other options is simply to use a uh use an organic mulch uh, like like straw to uh to 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 suppress the weeds. um one of the other one of the other problems some, p- sometimes people have with with those mulches, um, where you have a lot of organic matter, is that sometimes people get a lot of slugs. Uh, so that they they kind of come for the organic matter and they stay for your crop. Sometimes you know they they start eating the mm. eating the organic matter that's breaking down that that's your mulch and then they they when they've eaten that or had their fill of that then they move on to your crop and so so um, some people use things like Sluggo, which is a, a natural way. It's slug bait. So slug it's a it's a iron I think it's an iron oxide or iron phosphate or something like that that slugs are drawn to. They eat it and die. But really the best the long term solution. There's a lot of the people that I talked to, as as once again, as the longer they did the system, the more success they had with it. Because apparently a lot of the slug predators are, are ground dwelling um, insects. So there's a there's a ground beetle that is a slug predator, and also smaller snakes and things like that are, are, are um, slug predators. So I think one of the one of the things that we're seeing is how Um, with conventional agriculture our systems become unbalanced over time and so um so sometimes when people switch to a new system they would they would have they would see these imbalances like uh, they would get a whole bunch of slugs whereas if they would stick with the system over time the um the, the predators, like as, in, as with so many of our natural systems, over time, the, the natural predators would come and, and eat those slugs and, and things w- would even back out. But I just want to say that that can be a, uh, a, a drawback of those, those kind of systems, or especially at first, is that sometimes people's slug, slug populations go up. And if they're, they're growing crops that are vulnerable to them, they will, they'll, they'll be a problem, but they also usually get them, get them back under control.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because we talk about it so much in all types of transitions from industrial agriculture over to regenerative methods. And there is that adjustment period, whether it's building enough fertility in the soil for you to be able to plant what you originally did with chemicals and fertilizers, to, yeah, like you said, the, also the balance of natural predators and general wildlife that t- it takes a while to get reestablished. And like you said, the, the imbalances often show up first by the things that will damage your crops because that's the first food source that shows up. And then the predators will start to balance out the, um, the feeders once they realize that that population is going to come back and not just be wiped out by chemicals every season. All right, so let's finish off with the last one on deep compost mulch. And then we'll sort of give a conclusion about the Pros and cons of each one, and make sure that uh, I get a couple more questions in because I'm really curious about some stuff. But let's finish with uh, with deep compost mulch.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, and maybe it's it's appropriate to finish up with deep straw mulch or deep deep compost mulch because because this was the method that by far um, I could find the most growers doing. So this seems to be. The, the most common thing that people people have latched on to and so um, m- most people who are doing deep compost mulch they're using a different method in, in many cases to 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 prepare a bed for planting and that would be either um, either occultation so getting a getting a big tarp. And putting putting a tarp that um, excludes light down on the, the ground that they wanted to prepare simply to smother whatever's growing there. Um, in fact, I so here in central Maine we've got a lot of snow on the ground. I have some I have some um, some fields that um, I I was not growing on last year, and I but I knew I wanted to grow on this year, and so I just went out and put a tarp down on them last summer and they've been sitting there ever since so now now i've got out there under the snow i've got a tarp down and so as soon as i can in the spring so it's been sitting down there for a good a good long while so anything that's tried to grow over the whole summer and fall has been smothered and so what i'm planning on doing is um the the soil's fairly decent. They're they're fields that I've used before, but just uh, I hadn't I didn't use them this past year, and I wanted to try. So I wanted to try breaking them back in using these no-till methods. And so what I'm planning on doing is once the snow starts melting, is going out there and um and pulling the tarp back. And it should be, uh, fairly weed free, right? Because nothing can grow down there and they've been down f- for a long time. So there should have been several cycles of, of weed seeds having the chance to germinate and then dying underneath the tarp because they're not getting any light. Um, so that's, um, that's one way to use, to use, um, use occultation to prepare the, the, the ground for planting. And, and so that's, that basically does the function of tillage as far as getting rid of what's growing there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a non-invasive way of removing whatever veg- vegetation is growing where you want to put your crop, right? And I mean, once again, I love the simplicity. Instead of Instead of running a tractor, three different pieces of equipment, three different passes over the field, I go out there, put down a tarp, And walk away until i'm ready to get back to it and that's that's one of the aspects of occultation that i love the most is that it can it's really set it and forget it you know you go out there you do it you don't worry about it um and and you can also use it as a placeholder because one of the things that would stress me out when i was tilling is that once you've run that rototiller over a bed you've just churned up the the next crop of weed seeds and they're going to start growing uh, immediately and so it, and and I would feel like anytime I tilled something up the clock was ticking for me to 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 plant something there or else the weeds would start would get a head start on me. And so there's this placeholder aspect to um, to occultation or tarping where y- you can just put a tarp out there and 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 it it will keep the weeds from growing until whenever you get back to it. So the the drawback of occultation is it takes it takes a while. Most of the growers that I talked to said that they wanted to do occultation for at least 4 to 6 weeks and preferably longer. Because if you if you think about let's go once again let's go back to those perennial weeds. I don't know if you have dock, you have Johnson grass, you know. I mean, I I you know, here fill in the blank. Whatever your pernicious perennial weed is, right? Um Put put fill in the blank with your pernicious perennial weed. Four to six weeks of tarping is is not going to completely kill a lot of a lot of those perennial weeds, and so the idea is if you can leave a tarp on for more than four to six weeks, you're going to get more complete control of those of those long-lived uh, perennial perennial weeds that have so much energy stored down there in the root. Uh, but so that, that's the, the drawback to occultation is that it just takes time. So, um, the, the ideal situation is sort of like what I did. If you know, if you thinking about a piece of land and you, you're, you want to, you know, you want to grow on it next year, you know, put a tarp on it right now and just let it sit there until whenever you're ready to, to, um, to, to use it, um, So if you don't have that much time, but you, you want to use deep compost mulch kind of no-till method, uh, the faster version of occultation would be solarization, which lots of people are familiar with solarization as, as taking a piece of clear plastic, uh, like a, like an old piece of greenhouse plastic, for example, and putting it down on the piece of ground that you want to prepare and, and weighting it down with sand sandbags or something like that. And, um, on a hot sunny day, you'll get triple-digit temperatures down um, under that uh, under that clear piece of plastic. So, um, I I talked to growers here in the northeast part of the U.S., which isn't isn't a is not a comparatively warm part of the country, who said that they could get they could um, they could kill all the weeds from a previous crop in 24 hours, as long as it was sunny. And in the 70s, mm,
0: yeah, just like kind of bleaching them out on the under- underside, huh?
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's 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 like applying the greenhouse effect in a uh, on a very small airspace uh, with no ventilation, right? Because if you if you put like a clear piece of piece of plastic down and then weight the edges down, the heat just builds up in a very small space, and sure. So yeah, it does. Especially
0: if decomposition is happening underneath it, I would imagine that add to the heat as well.
1: Yes, probably, probably even more so. And, and, um, and, and I, a lot more growers that I talked to used, used, uh, occultation. So that the, the, um, the opaque tarping instead of, um, solarization using the clear plastic. And I think it's because a lot of people are worried if, um, if what we're doing here is we're trying to encourage and preserve as much of our soil life as possible. I think a lot of people were concerned that they were going to be frying their soil life with the, um, with the clear tarping, but uh, one of the growers that I spoke to, of course, he's he was concerned about this too. And so what he did is he took a probe thermometer and he went out and stuck it through the plastic on uh, one of those hot sunny days when he was doing occultation. And uh, sure enough, I, I forget the exact temperature. I I, I seem to think that he uh, told me that he was getting in uh, 130, 140 degrees Fahrenheit on wow. on a, on a on a sunny day, and that's here in the northeast the United States, which if you think about it, that's that's actually the temperature that a compost pile uh, gets up to. In fact, compost piles have to spend a certain amount of time at uh, 100. I believe it's over 140 degrees um, to be uh, the, for the compost to be um, certified organic or to to be used on on uh, on living crops. And so, once again, ch- you know, check check with your certifier. Uh, on that but that's you know t- to put that in some context that it, you're you're heating up the the surface of the soil to the same temperature that that a hot a hot compost pile would get to but what what this grower told me is that once he pushed the uh, once he pushed the probe a little bit farther down in the soil the temperature very quickly dropped off because if you think about it soil is not a good conductor uh he's got lots of air air pockets and um soil acts more like an insulator than a conductor so that that makes sense that you you could have a very high temperature right on the surface of the soil frying your frying your the weeds that are started and, and even frying some of the weed seeds without uh, killing killing the soil life deep down into the soil. And so, I mean, certainly in my mind, I think it's, it's, I guess it's a trade-off for everybody. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's certainly much less destructive to the soil to, to heat up the very, the very top layer of it for a short period of time than to say, say, take a tiller through. So I think you're, I buy that. You know, I think, I think you're definitely, um, you're definitely doing better by your soil life to, to do solarization than, than say, say tillage. So that gets us in. So, that gets us into you have your soil prepped for planting, right? Because you've either you've either had a, a, a opaque tarp down doing occultation and for a longer period of time, and you've smothered out whatever weeds are trying to grow there, or you've put a clear tarp down on a sunny day for a shorter period of time, and you've you've essentially fried the weeds that are trying to grow on the top of your bed. And so, um, what? What a lot of people would do from there is uh, this is where people, once, they, once they've knocked, knocked, the, um, knocked the weeds back for the first time, and it, it's worth mentioning that some, some people who, who are, are transitioning from a farm that's doing a lot of tilling to a farm that's no-till, they, they would also they might do one last pass with a tiller. Uh, the idea being they would do the kind of tillage to eliminate the uh, the perennial weeds that are likely to be more of a problem in a no-till system. So, so this is another option, which obviously isn't no-till uh, to do one last pass of tillage. On the other hand, if you've already, if you're already tilling, I think that you know that's that's one tack that a lot of people have taken is to do one last pass of tillage, and, and to try to to get rid of the perennial weeds, and then lay uh lay a heavy layer of compost down, um, and once again I'll say and you know like a, to put a very. Um, ballpark estimate on it, I'd say most of the people that I talked to, when they are establishing their beds for the very first time, they would put in the four to six inches of compost, uh, down. And so that's doing two things. Of course, there's a, a, a lot of fertility in the compost. So you're establishing the fertility for, for that crop and for many crops to come because of course, organic, uh, compost, um, uh, has a lot of organic matter in it. That's that's breaking down. That that will provide uh, long-term, slow-release fertility. And that much compost is also going to smother things that that try to come up through. Like sm- a small, you know, a small weed seed that germinates under four inches of compost is probably not going to be able to push its way out. And so that's why the um, for the deep compost method, that the compost is doing double duty of feeding the crop and acting as a mulch in place uh, as contrasted with let's say the mulch grown in place you know instead of instead of having this this mat of biomass that's smothering the weeds you've got this this pile of compost that's that's smothering the weeds and feeding the plant um at the same time so it's really not it's not super complicated what in fact what i love about these systems is that they're fairly uh they're fairly simple um uh, you know, I, t- I talked to farms that had been doing uh, deep compost mulch for over 20 years and and in fact w- you know one of them did start out with an initial they, they transitioned from tillage to com- uh, deep compost mulch and so they did one last pass of tillage and then they just started layering compost on and um, and uh, and just never looked back and so really most of these systems are very simple they're kind of like they're 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 really applying sort of what people would call the lasagna gardening or um, layering gardening methods to a small a small commercial farm, which, you know, it's really the same thing whether you're running a small commercial farm or you're trying to feed your family at the homestead. I mean, either, either way, you're trying to be uh, – do as much as possible with a small space and so so that's 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 another thing that i love about these no-till systems is that anybody who's driving a tractor around their farm knows there's a certain amount of area on the farm that's just unproductive because you need headlands to turn the tractor around you have uh you know Pathways where the tire tracks are that are getting, um, that, that, uh, compaction is radiating out into the beds from the tire tracks. And so, so if you set up a small, a small system that's either, uh, minimally or not mechanized at all, you can put almost all of your farm footprint into, um, actively growing crops without having to set aside a lot of space for, uh, for for uh, tractor turnarounds and things of that nature. So so those th- you know that's that's uh that's really a, a rundown of 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 those uh that's really the the four main methods uh that that are are discussed in the book. I love it. That was super helpful,
0: and I I, I really understand the practicality of each one of these, and I'm also really glad that you mentioned the lasagna gardening parallels because each of these four could potentially even stack on top of each other. So if you want to get started really fast, you could smother out with cardboard, put down a layer of straw and top dress with compost, for example, or even plant a green mulch in on top of all of those sequences. If you wanted to, you know, really kickstart the system, and your soil was terrible to begin with, don't you think?
1: Yeah, actually, that's that's a really good point, Oliver. I'm glad you brought that up because because m- m- most of the growers, actually, I think all the growers that I talked to used more than one of these systems. Some of them used um, occultation and deep deep compost mulch. Some of them use occultation and deep straw mulch. You know, it's 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 not an orthodoxy. It's they they really mix and match them, and that's that's a, that's a really good point uh, that you make that you might. Uh, there are some things that you might do like the occultation only once to get things to get your garden started. And then, um, uh, and then you, you know, if you had good weed suppression, then maybe you never have to do occultation again. Maybe you just use uh deep, you know, a deep compost mulch to both continue suppressing weeds or, uh, uh and, and also, um, fertilize the crop and, and keep growing in, or maybe, you know, maybe the weeds come back and you decide to put the tart back on, uh, that you, uh, a certain area because it's getting weedy and you can spare it. And so you put a tarp on for, um, for half the year. I mean, if, you know, if people are thinking about getting started with these systems, I would really encourage them to, uh, to pick out the ones that, that appeal to them. And, and, um, if they have more land than they need, you know, put, put more of it into, um, tarp more of it down than they, than they need that way, um, if let's, let's say if you, if you only need, uh, you know, a quarter acre to grow on, but you tarp a half acre, then you could start growing on that first quarter acre your first year and just leave the tarp on the, on your second quarter acre, because the weed control is only going to get better the longer that you leave that tarp down. And then let's say at, if at the last minute you realize, oh, I need to plant some more winter squash or, you know, you know, whatever reason you realize you need more space, then that ground is prepped and ready. You can start peeling back that tarp. In fact, that's, that's the way that a lot of these people talked with me about it as, as peeling back the tarp. You know, when they would just, they would just leave a tarp out there and whenever they needed a row, they would peel it back one for one row. And when they were ready to plant something else, they would peel the tarp back one more row and basically just leave the tarp down as long as possible to keep suppressing weeds and just gradually peel it back as they needed it. So, so that might, that would be a tip is to, to, you know, do, if, if you're using a low, a, a low, um, a low effort method like, like occultation with a tarp or even, even, um, even deep straw mulch. You know, if you can go out and mulch, mulch a bigger area than you, than you really need, then when you get around to needing that area, it'll already be prepped for you. So I realize not everybody's in that situation. You know, some, some people have, have just a very small space and they need to use it all. But if people have more land than they actually want to grow on right away, but they think they might want to grow on more later on, the, the, these these low you know low effort methods um, I encourage them to just um, th- just start employing these low low effort methods on uh, to prepare grounds since all they need to do is just leave them there f- to, for them to work.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now we've gone through this in quite a bit of detail at this point, and all of it makes sense to me so far. The one question that kind of stood out for me after going through the book is specifically root crops, because we just talked about all of the ways that tilling the soil does so much damage. How do you figure root crops into a no-till system? Because harvesting them is essentially tilling the soil in a way, isn't it?
1: Uh, I guess that it really depends since there, there are so many different ways to harvest root crops. Um, I know that a lot of the people that I talk to, well, I guess one thing I'll say is, yeah, harvesting a root crop out is going gonna, is gonna to be more invasive than, um, than taking, um, you know, something that you just cut like a lettuce plant or a lot, a lot of, a lot of the farms that I talked to, what they would do, the way that they would flip a bed from one crop to the next crop is that they would, they would take, they would cut all the above ground biomass off and, and, um, compost it somewhere else. Uh, or in place like the example with uh with Bear Mountain Farm where they they just they just left the the residue on the bed and they since they had time they would just let it compost in place but you know for for people who are trying to do um people who are trying to do a quicker turnover they would cut off all the above ground matter of the crop like let's say, you know they would cut a lettuce plant off right at the soil surface or even even big plants like like broccolis and cabbage and things like that they would they would they would even get loppers so for for um, a, a brassica plant like that right, right where you've got a really big stem it's kind of hard to cut through they would get loppers out there lop the plant off right at the soil at the soil level so so the roots actually stay right there in the ground and and you're you're not pulling them out and disturbing the soil, so I guess um, I I don't think of harvesting root crops as tillage. But once again, it's 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 I, I it's it's up to personal preference because I think one thing that's going on is a lot of these growers have such fluffy soil that they. Are, they're not having to do the more kind of invasive ways of harvesting root crops. Like, like uh, people who've worked on farms may know that there there are various things that that some farms do to harvest root crops. Like, th- like they may run an undercutter, which is basically a huge a huge blade that runs under the entire bed and and just kind of lifts and loosens the soil around a root crop and, and plus severs severs the deep tap roots of a root crop. It makes them easier to pull out. Uh, or y- y- some, uh, use like a potato digger. Um, some people use a potato digger that, um, that, um, fluffs, you know, fluffs up the soil and, and brings the potatoes to the top. So I think that, it pu- that a-, a lot of the growers that I talked to, they had gotten this really loose, fluffy soil. And so they could, they could broad fork, broad fork lightly and pull, um, and pull carrots out by by hand instead of doing the more the more invasive um, uh, maneuvers. And I also did know I actually talked to some no till growers who didn't grow potatoes because they felt like they felt like um, harvesting the potatoes was tillage. And so I guess and I guess I mean that that comes down to the the question of are you going to not grow root crops to maintain that orthodoxy? Or are you going to grow root crops and say everything else that I'm doing to be no-till or less tillage is 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 uh, is going to uh s- still improve the soil? And so that's where it comes down to individual growers' personal preferences. Like I said, you know, I I can think of one grower who who didn't grow potatoes specifically because they didn't want to, they didn't want to because because harvesting of potatoes would necessitate um stirring up the soil, and then. I also, uh, you know, one of the growers that I interviewed for the book, I mean, a lot of the growers that I interviewed for the book did grow um, carrots and root crops like beets and turnips and things like that. And I I really don't think uh, uh, pulling a beet or a turnip out of the ground is a huge, I I don't consider that a huge level of soil disturbance. And then I, I, I can think of, so one... One of the growers that I interviewed in the book did grow potatoes, and they actually u- they used a potato digger to dig the potatoes, and they said that's the closest that they ever get to tillage. But I feel like um, potatoes are an important crop for a lot of growers, and so they may say, I, then I guess it comes down to how important how important are potatoes to your farm versus uh, being completely no no tillage, and so. That's where you you know no till is not like having organic standards or something like that. There's no there's no orthodoxy. There's no line of like, you know. You can grow beets and be no-till, but you can't grow carrots and potatoes or something like that. And that's where, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it just comes down to the inter- individual grower and maintaining their own, uh, their their own integrity. Because the 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 people that I'm thinking of who harvested their potatoes with a potato digger, well, their their system was great, and they but they did report that they had more weeds after after the block that was in potatoes, and so they had they had developed an interesting rotation and I'm going to get it wrong. What did they do? They would I think it's that after digging the potatoes they planted they planted fall garlic since that work that works in a rotation here in the northeast that they would plant I think I actually got that right. They would they would dig their potatoes which were, which disturbs the soil more than anything else. So that was that was the biggest soil disturbance on the whole farm was digging potatoes with a potato digger. And so what they would do is and plus the potatoes usually come out s- midsummer early fall and then garlic is planted in late fall, right? So so the way their rotation worked is they would they would dig their potatoes that same l- later that same fall they would plant garlic in every other bed and then the following spring they would plant they would plant winter squash in every other bed that, that didn't get garlic. The idea being that by the time the weeds were starting to grow they would be pu- they would be harvesting the garlic and then they would let the um, that following summer and they would let the winter squash uh, vine out over these beds that had had been had the soil disturbance with the harvesting the potatoes the previous, uh, the previous summer and those big leafy winter squash plants would smother would be a natural smother crop and smother the weeds that were likely higher in a higher numbers than 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 most of their um than most of their fields so Mm, yeah that makes sense yeah, and so I mean, I, I it's not really for. Sounds like
0: people are finding innovative ways, regardless of how they manage the um, the details of each of these systems. They've found innovative ways that work for them that combat maybe some of the downsides of the way they work.
1: Right, right, exactly. I, I feel like it's it's not really for me to judge. I mean, I, I oh- you know, different different people. You'll see if if you look at the growers mentioned in the book. Some of them have sort of like statements on their websites and things like that of what you know what exactly no till means to them. But they're also fairly um, you know they say it's 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 um, it's it's not like organic standards where the same standard applies for everybody. It's more of a philosophy for them. And I also know yeah some people some people are more. um some people have strong opinions about that, like like uh, the Tilther, for example. So the Tilther is this little tool. It has kind of the same the same action as a as a rototiller you know but but it was designed it's powered by a a cordless drill and so it was was a tool i believe it was developed by uh elliot coleman working with johnny's or maybe it was just his project I, i i'm not exactly sure but the idea is that elliot wanted a something that would just fluff up the top the top you know half inch or inch of a bed for planting things, you know, very small seeded crops like carrots or, or salad mix or something like this. And so, um, I think personally, I think that's pretty legit. I think if, if you're simply, uh, if you're simply disturbing the, the top inch or less of the soil just to, to be able to plant your crop, I, I don't, I think that's legit personally, because you're not getting all those, you're not getting all the drawbacks of the deep, deep, um, of deep aggressive tillage. Um, but people are welcome to their own opinions. You know, my thought is that any, any of these things that anybody does to um, reduce, um, reduce tillage at all are, are, are you know, my, my ideal is to get completely away from t- tillage and go no till. But I think anything that anybody can do to reduce the tillage, um, is, is a huge step in the right direction. And if, if, uh, so, you know, if, if the, if the worst thing you're doing is harvesting potatoes, um, out of your ground, um,
0: yeah, you're still doing really well.
1: Yeah. You're, you're still doing a hundred percent better than, than someone who's, who's tilling up their beds three times a year. So, yeah, so, um, you know, that's why I think it's legit. But I also it's not it's not for me to judge. I guess I guess I wanted to make sure that everybody that I interviewed in the book was was making progress as far as is as uh, improving their own soils. And I, you know, you know from being from being to most of their farms, um, I, I think that's the case. I mean, I was just I was just really amazed at at how you um, at how high the organic matter and how low the weed pressure was of a lot of these soils of where people had been doing it for a while. And then it was just interesting to visit growers who are brand new to it and see how they struggled a bit with getting the weed pressure under control in the first place because they didn't have their tiller anymore to come in and just be a giant eraser when the weeds got bad. So it was interesting to see the farms that were starting out struggle with the weed pressure a little bit, but also... They seem to be getting, it seemed to be coming under control pretty quickly as they nice. stuck with these systems.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was most impressed by kind of from the angle of getting people started in farming is just how empowering it can be to not need such large equipment and such major overheads just to getting started in a market garden system. I think even aside from all of the benefits that you mentioned about soil health, That this could be the thing that really gets people who otherwise didn't have the financial access or the desire to operate all of that machinery to really getting their foot in the door and getting established a lot faster. So there's endless possibilities here. I'm so glad that this resource is available and that there's an increasing network of people doing this. And before we wrap up for the day, can you tell our listeners more about what you do through your magazine and how they can find other resources that you put out?
1: We've been having a lot of articles on, on no-till through growing for market because if, if, uh, people aren't familiar, uh, the, the publication that I, I'm the editor of, it's, I, I consider it a trade, trade publication for small farmers in that it's everything is very practical. So it's called Growing for Market magazine. It's been around for, uh, 28 years as of this year. And, uh, we say it's news and ideas for local growers. And so, uh, we have, we try to have a lot of, uh, Really practical articles on, um, the nitty gritty of, of, of small farming, like crops and techniques for growing them. And then we try to focus a lot on marketing, because on a small farm, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a lot different growing commodity crops that somebody else is selling versus um, standing behind your own farm stand or um, CSA. And so we have a lot of articles about marketing. And then we've been trying to have a lot of articles about the business of small farming, too, because I think nobody goes into farming because they love business, but they need to they need to be a decent business person, uh, to stay in business. So I'd say, you know, that's, that's, that's really, uh, what the magazine is about. We have a lot of articles along those lines. And, um, it's, it's since we've been around for 28 years, we're still printing it. And, um, so people can get it by mail. It comes out 10 times a year. If people are more interested in the digital, they can also get digital 10 times a year. And we also have archives. So people can go back and, um, um uh, this is a nice you know a nice thing with the, the digital is people can go back and and look through the archives and see what we've said about no till or you know growing parsnips or whatever their whatever their um their interest may be so we've got thousands of articles archived um, on the website for, oh, from over the years. So I urge people to check it out. It's growingformarket.com, just G-R-O-W-I-N-G-F-O-R-M-A-R-K-E-T.com. And uh, Oliver, for your listeners, I wanted to make a discount code. Uh, they can go to the website and put in the code EDGE, E-D-G-E, all lowercase and get uh, 20% off any uh, subscription. Or we are selling the book through the magazine as well. So um, I urge people to check it out. We are happy to send people a um, a uh, sample copy. You know, if people just want to see a sample uh, a copy, uh, we can send them digital or print. And so uh, check it out. It's a really good resource for growers.
0: Yeah, I'll second that. I really encourage people to check out that resource and. Andrew, I really look forward to staying in contact and maybe doing a follow-up on this as you learn and kind of expand the database of articles available for no-till methods, as well as some of the other things that you advocate for through your publications as well. So I'm really looking forward to reaching out again in the future
1: that would be great oliver i'd love that yeah get in touch anytime because the the other thing that's fun for me is that now i'm i'm starting to put some of these techniques uh to use um on my own farm and so uh right right now a lot of my a lot of my experience other than with the the uh, mulch grown in place method is vicariously through other people but now i'm i'm having a lot of fun starting to use these methods so i i would love to i'd love to talk anytime um after i've had a chance to do them um uh, a little bit on my own farm and and, uh, and uh, might have some uh, other other uh, feedback by that time. So yeah, let's do it. Let's talk again sometime.
0: For sure. Yeah, we'll have a lot more information from our own experiments here in our context, in our super rocky soil in the mountains of Guatemala. So I can't wait to compare notes. It's going to be fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't wait to hear about that.
0: Great. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time, Andrew. I look forward to connecting in the future. You have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you have a good one too, Oliver. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.